Welcome to uh, service this morning. Thank you for being here. Today we're going to get our fill of politics and religion, which is, uh, I'm sure, not exactly what you had in mind when you came to church this morning, but <clears throat> it's where we're going to be speaking today. We're going to be talking about our government and that. And uh, I'm Mark. I'm uh, just really amazed when I look back at the last 11 years of my life to see how God took someone completely unworthy out of this cult that Sam mentioned and uh, has just allowed me to experience freedom in Jesus Christ and just uh, just the life that I get to live now as um, a free person in Jesus is amazing and I love it and I'm just thrilled that I don't have to teach my children um, false things about Jesus and about the church and about our Father God, but I get to teach them the real truth that the Scripture teaches without having to color it in a certain uh, different way. But anyway, in the last couple of weeks we've been hearing from the first chapter of Timothy, uh, Paul's first letter to Timothy, about his charge uh, that uh, Timothy is to stand strong and defend the truth from the wolves, those who would uh, pervert the gospel of salvation uh, by teaching different doctrines. Now we've heard and we've learned about how ever since the beginning of the church there have been those who, uh, whose purpose it seems uh, is to take... Uh, the doctrines of Christ, the doctrines of grace, and uh, switch them up, change them up, just twist them a little bit, and lead people away from Jesus onto themselves. And really, we don't live in any different times. I mean, uh, the faces and names have changed, but, but, but it still goes on, and that's why we have to treat uh, uh, these words that we get from Paul to Timothy as though he were writing them to us today. Um, many of our mainline denominational churches um, have strayed away from the truth. They've, they've uh, so watered down the gospel that, that it practically doesn't exist in some and almost doesn't exist in others. Um, that gospel truth that we are sinners, that we're saved by the, by the work and, and, and person of Jesus Christ alone through faith by grace, is of vital importance to keep front and center in our churches today. And that's what we emphasize here in our church, is that the gospel always remain preeminent in our lives and in our church. The first seven verses of the second chapter is what we'll be reading today, and, and they are as follows. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing, and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all 
which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now Paul gives Timothy some practical instructions on how he is to defend the truth. He says, first of all, that we are to be a praying people. And our prayers ought to be evangelical in nature. That our prayers should be for the benefit of those who are praying for that they may be saved. Now, if you'll notice, in the first verse, he says that our prayers should be made for all people. And in the fourth verse, he says that it's God's desire all, that all people would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, that might interfere a little bit with your theology. When you read those words, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, God, how does he... Why is he desiring all people to be saved? Because I know that there's this doctrine which the Bible teaches of election and predestination where, where he only chooses some to save and, and uh, others he kind of passes over. And, and uh, how does that all work? Well, you're not the only one who, 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 who asks that question. In fact, that one word all in, in this passage is the subject of a lot of conversation and, and a lot of discussion among theologians and, and other other people that care about, about theology and about what the Bible teaches concerning our salvation and about Christ's atonement and, and all those other big theological words. <clears throat> but um, the, really the source comes back to this, this, this uh, understanding that you might have about, about Christ's death and, and what he accomplished on the cross. There's, 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 there's different understandings about the extent of his atonement. There's some who, who would say, uh, who say and believe and teach and believe the scriptures teach that Christ's atonement was limited to those whom he came to save. And there's truth to that because the Bible teaches that. There's also folks who say that Christ's atonement really is unlimited because of passages such as this where, where the Bible clearly says that God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Well, I don't think it necessarily has to be either or. Um, and I think as we'll read another verse here in a minute, where, where there's a certain sense in which Christ's uh, atonement or his death on the cross really goes to the benefit of all people and that he's a savior to all people. But... Ultimately, I think that there's a fear that if we really embrace this word all and apply it in a certain way, that, that the Bible's teaching universalism. And Paul certainly doesn't seem to be a universalist as he, you look at the rest of what he's written. And universalism simply is the belief that Christ eventually will save everybody and that everybody's going to heaven and, and no one's going to hell and we're all going to get there, no matter which road we take to get there. Ultimately, all paths lead to the same place. Well, scriptures clearly don't teach that. Um, we certainly don't believe that. Um, but I, that's not what Paul is talking about here. So I don't think we have to worry about that as being... I, you know, ultimately, there's some people who say, you know, maybe this just means that there's all types of people that he's talking about, when, when Paul says all 
people. We should pray for all people and that God's desires that all would be saved. He's talking about all groups of people, all races, languages, backgrounds, ethnic groups, you know, you name it, whatever. That He's going to save them from all groups. Well, he certainly he's going to do that. But yet, why didn't, you know, why didn't Paul put all types of people? You know, Spurgeon, when he talks about this uh, in one of his um, writings, he said, you know, if the Holy Spirit would have wanted Paul to put all types of people or all groups, he would have done that, but he didn't. He put all people, and he says, I'm going to rest with that, and I'm going to rest with that too, because I really uh, don't think that it's right to really start adding words to what is already in the Bible or taking them out. So we've got to try to manage what, what we're given and, 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 and receive it and believe it. Well, I think that the point here really is is that Paul doesn't want us just to pray for the elect. Okay? First of all, we don't know who the elect people are. We have to assume and treat that everyone has an equal opportunity for salvation. We can't think that, oh, this person's so far gone that there's no way possible that they could be within the grace of God or His forgiveness. Ultimately, God is the only one who knows who... He's going to save. And He'll bring them to faith, to salvation, at His time, at His choosing. And uh, that's not really our, our concern. Our job, according to Paul, is to pray for all people and then speak the gospel to them, speak the truth to them, and then allow the role of the Holy Spirit to come in where it's His job to convert them if it's in His divine plan to do so. As far as the fourth verse where He talks about God's desire that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. I believe he really is speaking about God's true desire. God does have a desire for people to come to him, even when it is in opposition to his purpose or purposes of salvation. The scriptures support this desire that God has in many different places. And we're going to take a look at a few of these passages Let's start with Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, where God says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? God's desire that all would be saved is in fact consistent with who he is. He is a merciful loving God whose desire has always been and continues to be that sinners would turn away from their rebellion against Him and, and turn to Him in faith and in obedience for the forgiveness and the grace that He so richly offers through His Son, Jesus Christ. Listen to what He says in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. He says, Turn to Me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. Also in Isaiah chapter 55, in the very first verse, he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. I love this verse. This verse communicates to me amazing truths about God the seller and me the buyer. First of all, it tells us about God who is compassionate 
patient, graciously inviting, inviting sinners to himself to have a relationship with him. There's a good reason that God offers for us to come and buy without money and without price. To receive this heavenly wine, this heavenly milk for no charge. It's because, let's face it, we don't have any spiritual money. We don't have any spiritual gold or silver that it takes to buy this heavenly wine and this heavenly milk. The only thing that we would have to offer for this living water are counterfeit coins or fool's gold. And he wouldn't receive it anyway. That is why he offers it to us for purchase without money and without price. There's another verse in Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that tells us about God's patience and his compassion, where he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. As I previously mentioned, God's desire is not always the same as His eternal saving purposes. The Bible does teach, though, that God has chosen certain sinners from since the beginning of time that He would call out of unbelief to salvation. Paul writes to the Ephesians in, his, in the first chapter, starting with verse 3, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace which, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. I mean, that's pretty clear to me that he's, you know, that this is, this, this is what the Bible teaches. This is what God has planned according to his purpose. There's a lot of passages that teach the doctrine of election and predestination, but my purpose isn't this morning to go into all that right now, but only to illustrate that when Paul tells us that we should pray for all people, I really believe he means we should pray for all people regardless of who they are. God takes no pleasure in the damnation of the wicked, Yet even though it does not please him, the truth is he still receives glory even in the damnation of those who refuse to believe in him. This is according to what Paul has written in Romans chapter 9. Tough words that a lot of people would like to just pass over, but they're here and they help to explain. In verse 22 of chapter 9, Paul writes, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Now you might be asking yourself, Well, how can this be? How can the same God who on one hand says that he has a desire for all of us, for all people to come to him to turn back, turn their back on their wickedness and their immorality and their unbelief and their idolatry and come to him as the only true God and 
worship Him and Him alone. That's His desire. But at the same time, the Scriptures teach that He only allows certain people to do that because He only chooses some. And faith is a gift. And we can't manufacture that on our own because the Bible says that it's not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. It is not of works, lest anyone should boast. Well, there's one one way that you can try to look at this. And I know that for, for a lot of us, this may be one of those one of those parts of Christian theology that you just have to apprehend because scriptures teach it, knowing that you may not be able to comprehend it on this side of reality, this side of, of, uh, of uh, eternity. But if you think about desire and purpose, you know, uh, and, and bring it to a very human level, how many times have you woke up on Monday morning and your desire was to stay in bed maybe sleep for another hour or two, then get up and have some coffee and maybe read the newspaper or check your email or read your favorite blogs instead of your greater purpose, which is to get up and take a shower and get in your car and join the thousands of other people that are going to work and then go to work and be productive and all of that. Your desire doesn't necessarily match your purpose, but you know that even though you might desire one thing, even though God's desires are never sinful, His desires are what they are, but He has His own eternal purposes, which we have to just rest and accept. Uh, So we're instructed to pray for all people, and Paul says, especially for kings and those in high positions. Too often, we are guilty of only praying for those in our own immediate circle, for our own needs, and for the needs of our our family, our friends, and those who we know. When was the last time you prayed for President Obama and for the rest of our government? And I'm not talking about just a, a prayer that that he would soon be removed from office by your favorite candidate but that he would actually glorify God by how he lives his life, that he would come to know Jesus Christ in a saving way and that his heart would be transformed by the power of the gospel and that he would begin to lead in a completely new way. And not just our president, but, but our senators and our representatives and our governor and our legislature in Olympia and maybe our, our town mayor, our city council. That's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about those people who, quite honestly, probably don't get a lot of prayer for them in their behalf, except for the wrong kinds of prayers. And so I think a lot of times we assume that, that they're going to be okay, but we don't take the steps to pray for them. I must admit that as I was preparing for this, I realized my own failure when it came to this. And I had to spend some time on my knees confessing my own um, uh, non-praying when it comes to our elected officials and those who lead in government. And I had to ask God for some conviction that I would regularly pray 
for our president and those who lead us in government. Not just that they would lead well when it comes to things that are important, like taxes, um, spending, government, uh, uh, wars, you know, foreign policy, all that stuff. But really that their hearts would be transformed by the gospel and that they would spend the rest of their time in office pursuing God's glory instead of their own. Imagine what it would be like if all Christians in this land regularly prayed for the leaders of our government in this way. Instead of just trying to accomplish change in the old-fashioned way of getting rid of one set of bums by voting in another. And believe me, I don't think getting involved politically is wrong or anything else like that. But I'm just talking about the other side, which we just don't do, I'm convinced. Imagine what, it would, be, what, imagine what would happen if the president and some of the other leaders really began to lead in this way. Imagine the type of change that we would see in Washington, D.C. or in Olympia. It's easy. Believe me, I've been there. It's easy to be so partisan and to get so caught up in the politics of our land that we may purposely withhold our prayers for the president because we want him to fail, because we want our guy to get in there. But think about it. As bad as you think our current president is or as bad as you think our last president was, and I think you'll probably find some of all of you, in, you know, to fit those in here this morning. The fact of the matter is, neither one of those guys are nearly as bad as the king that was ruling at the time Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, who he told Timothy to pray for. And that king was Nero. And if you've read anything about Nero, he wasn't exactly friendly to Christians. In fact, uh, he was rather aggressive in his persecution of Christians. And he really was, according to history, an evil person. He, he even executed his own mother and his own stepbrother. He's not the only king that was evil since that time. And Christians have been instructed to pray for their king, to pray for their president, to pray for those in high positions. Ultimately, according to Romans chapter 13, Governments are instituted by God. In verse 1 it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And it doesn't matter just because we voted them in. They're still instituted by God. And those are hard words. And, you know, I don't really want to sometimes believe those words. And maybe you also, at times, don't really want to believe that governments are instituted by God. But that's what it says here. But the effect of praying in this way, according to Paul here, is that we would lead so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, I don't think he means that the goal of our lives should should be to pursue peace at any cost. But, that those who, but if those who rule at the highest levels of our government are transformed by the gospel, then the effect will be to bring peace into our lives. Then we're freer to bring the gospel to more and more people.
Let's take a look at a biblical example of where this actually happened. When Stephen, who was the first of seven deacons that were chosen by the apostles to help minister in the early church, when he was being stoned to death for boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus to those who didn't want to hear it, and they were stoning him to death while he was just moments away from death, he had a vision where he's seen heaven opened up and he's seen God the Father and he's seen Jesus Christ at his right hand. And as he's seeing this vision, he prays, cries out to God and he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now one of those who was involved with the stoning of Stephen was Saul of Tarsus, the very person who later wrote this epistle that we're studying to Timothy. But in his early days, Saul was a notable persecutor of Christians. But the Lord answered Stephen's prayer anyway as it concerned Saul of Tarsus. Because on a later excursion to Damascus to round up yet more Christians to arrest and to kill, Saul is knocked off his horse and has a face-to-face meeting with Jesus. This personal visit by Jesus results in Saul's conversion. He becomes the Apostle Paul, and the rest is history. That one guy who was the early Christian's worst nightmare turns out to be their brother and fellow sufferer in in Jesus Christ. But best of all, according to Paul, praying like this, praying for all people and for those in high positions, is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. We are told to make supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Four words. They all speak to prayer. Some people don't make much much of a deal between them, but there are slight nuances. I'll take a quick look at some of the distinctions between them. Supplications are requests that arise from a sense of need. When we know what is lacking, we plead with God to supply it. Um, As we look around us at the masses of of lost humanity, uh, we should be driven to our knees in prayer and supplication. Listen to what the 17th century English Puritan Richard Baxter wrote. Oh, if you have the hearts of Christians or of men in you, let them yearn toward your poor, ignorant ungodly neighbors. Alas, there is but a step betwixt them and death and hell. Many hundred diseases are waiting to ready, waiting ready to seize on them and if they die unregenerate, they are lost forever. Have you hearts of rock that cannot pity men in such a case as this? If you believe not the word of God and the danger of sinners, why are you Christians yourselves? If you do believe it, why do you not bestir yourself to the helping of others. Do you not care who is damned so you may be saved? If so, you have, in, you have sufficient cause to pity yourselves. For it is a frame of spirit utterly inconsistent with grace. 
Dost thou live close by them or meet them in the streets or labor with them or travel with them or sit and talk with them and say nothing to them of their souls or life to come? Their houses were on fire. Thou wouldst run and help them and wilt thou not help them when their souls are almost at the fire of hell? Those are some tough words from several hundred years ago. And I know when I read them, I realized that I... I could do a lot more. I could do a lot more when it comes to making supplication for our neighbors and those who we don't know and those who we do know. And in addition to that, speaking to them when we have that opportunity. Now when Paul mentions prayers, he's talking about, that's kind of a general word for prayer. It's best known, this is the prayer for the lost, that, this is the prayer um, for the lost that we uh, pray ultimately to God as part of our, our worship to Him. Uh, we know that God is glorified each time that a sinner comes to Him for salvation. And everything that we do should be for the express purpose of increasing God's glory. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Now, intercessions are the type of prayer that comes when we really understand the depths of misery and despair that the people around us are in. This, this kind of requires us to, to know the people around us and to know the issues that surround the people that we don't know. Um, real intercessory prayer cannot be cold and detached, but has to be uh, prayed with empathy and compassion and sympathy. The Bible tells us that both Christ and the Holy Spirit intercede for us. Finally, thanksgivings ought to be always a part of our prayers for the lost. Consider how huge it is that God extends His grace to the undeserving by using the undeserving to do it, to reach the gospel with others. We have much reason to be thankful. Now let's look at verses 5 and 6. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. Now part of what Paul was fighting against in the early church and in Ephesus, where Timothy was, was a feeling of exclusivity that was taught and being taught by some of the Judaizers, uh, some of these wolves that had come into the church. And Paul mentions them in the first chapter as those ones who were teaching the law when they should have been teaching grace. Uh, because of their Jewishness, these Judaizers felt like they had a special connection to God and that uh, others couldn't possibly be able to, to have this connection. And uh, it's a type of exclusivism or elitism that's still part of uh, the you know, the church experience today in different places. And I know because that's the type of exclusivist sect that I was raised in. 
Not only was I raised in it, but I even preached it for a number of years. It was a small denomination, so small that you've, you've never even heard it. I guarantee it. Unless you've talked to me or you know someone in there, uh, you wouldn't have known it. But yet, we taught, and this is what I believed, and I believed it with all my heart, that this was the manifestation of the kingdom of God here on earth, and that this is where salvation is to be found, and it cannot be found anywhere else. You have to know this fellowship. You have to know this little church. They believed, I believed, that we were the only group where the Holy Spirit had any influence or where He was present at all. One of the fundamental teachings was that, still continues to be in church, that God only forgives sins through the oral proclamation of the forgiveness of sins, which was done in a very formulaic way. If you sin, you ask forgiveness, and the one forgiving who was speaking on behalf of Christ would, would say, believe your sins forgiven in the name and precious blood of Jesus. And the problem is, you know, they had verses that they based this on. So it wasn't like they pulled this out of, you know, uh, a box or a hat somewhere else, but this is something that they really felt truly is what the Scriptures taught. But it kept me, and it kind of keeps others that are in that, from having a personal relationship with Jesus because I was taught that I can't go directly to God for my forgiveness or for grace or for anything, really. That, I mean, I could pray to God. Certainly, that was okay. But I couldn't ask God to forgive me. I, I couldn't go through Jesus Christ to get to the Father. I had to go through one of, one of them. Now, as is true with most heretical teachings, error often begets error and and invariably, there are, there are so many points of difference between this and the historic Christian faith that moving from error to orthodoxy becomes literally humanly impossible. And that's the place where I sat for the first 30 years of my life, believing and finally teaching aberrant Christian doctrine, because that's what I'd been taught was the true gospel. Now, I believe absolutely that if God had not called me out of that darkness into his marvelous light, that I'd still be there, along with most of my family and all of my wife Cheryl's family. One of the verses that God used to get my attention and to show me the error of what I believe was this one right here that we just read. It remains a foundational verse for me. There is only one God. and He is available to all people who call upon Him in repentance and faith. There exists no one people group, no one church or denomination anywhere here on this earth that can lay exclusive claim to him. Furthermore, Christ is the only mediator. He is the only go-between between us, between us as men and in God as our Father. For some, or it seems that that one of the first things that these wolves will do when they, when they come in and, and, and influence the doctrine of a church is to 
set up some sort of human barrier between, between man and God. Whether living or dead. For some, it's become Mary, the mother of God, has become the mediator. Or there's also a host of, of dead saints that are used as intercessories or mediators between us and God that people are encouraged to pray through. In my case, to receive grace from God just required another believer to speak on behalf of Christ to orally proclaim the gift of forgiveness, the grace of forgiveness. So let me repeat what Paul says. I think it's so important. There's only one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, ransom is a rich theological term that describes Christ's substitutionary death for us. He paid the ultimate price for our freedom by sacrificing himself on the cross. It was there that he became the very embodiment of sin, taking on the death that we deserve. And he secured our freedom forever. Now, when Paul tells Timothy that Christ himself gave himself as a ransom for all, this doesn't mean that all are or will be saved. On a practical and very real level, however, there are benefits of uh, Christ's atonement that all of humanity shares, whether they realize it or not. In the fourth chapter of this very same letter to Timothy, Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So it's clear from this verse that there's a, there's a sense in which even those who don't believe benefit from Christ as Savior, that he's still their Savior in some way. Now, if you look back into uh, the very first pages of the Bible in Genesis, God makes a promise to Adam and Eve. He says that, if you are to eat this fruit, which I have forbidden from you, you will surely die. But the moment they eat it, they didn't die right away. Their death didn't come, apart, didn't come about until hundreds of years later. In the case of Adam, I think he was like 900 years old or something. So, grace came right away. And, and, and uh, this atonement, which hadn't been made yet, still off in the future, still a few thousand years away, but yet there was, a, uh, there was a delay in judgment that not only did Adam and Eve get to experience, but everyone gets to experience. Because we really don't have much time. Even though we may, we may think we're born innocent, we're really not. But even if you think that we're born innocent, there's really not a lot of time that goes on between the time we're born and the time we actually sin. And so God has grace to us, no matter who you are, and, and delays that judgment and gives opportunity for the gospel to be preached. But, as we read, there's a sense also in which where there's... Paul says that Christ is Savior especially to those who believe. So if you believe, then Christ really is especially your Savior. And 
And what he means by that is that when you place your trust in what he did for you, instead of what you do for yourself, then you've been saved from the wrath of God and that you've been given eternal life. Finally, in verse 7, Paul writes, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, when Paul says, for this, he's referring to the great truth of God that he just, just mentioned in the preceding verses. That God is our Savior. Christ is the only mediator. And that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. Paul's entire commission hinged on those truths. When he says he's a teacher, it can also be translated that he's a herald. And in the uh, old times back then, a herald was actually uh, the ancient world's version of a reporter for like CNN or Fox News, a person who would proclaim or speak publicly announcements in the city square. They didn't have uh, mass media then. They didn't have television, obviously, radio, nothing like that. So these heralds would go about and preach and, and, and speak news. So they might just be delivering news from one city to another. So, so think of Paul as being kind of our early Israel's Anderson Cooper or Sean Hannity or, 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 or someone like that, with the exception that his news that he was delivering was uh, a bit more important because he was reporting the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As an apostle, he was a messenger personally chosen by Christ to deliver the good news. And by calling himself a teacher to the Gentiles, he's distinguishing his role as reaching the great non-Jewish population of the, of the Middle Eastern region and beyond. But there must have been some question concerning his authority because he adds this parenthetical statement that he is telling the truth, that he's not lying. So there must have been some who, who uh, were convinced that he wasn't uh, one to be taken seriously or that maybe his message wasn't true. But convinced that he was, his message was uh, the gospel truth that he was proclaiming to Timothy. Paul was not dissuaded. He was not distracted by, by those who doubted his call as a preacher apostle or teacher. Most probably these detractors were the same wolves who felt threatened by the power of Paul's message. So Paul went forth and he boldly proclaimed the message that he had been given. Let us also go forth boldly with authority that we too have been given as ambassadors for Christ, proclaiming the message that God is the only Savior and that Christ is the only mediator between God and men, and that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for the word that you have preserved for us. Lord, as we read over this passage, I know myself, I feel like I have not lived according to what you have uh, commanded that we pray regularly for those who are in authority over us in high positions for our president 
So, this morning, Lord, I do want to lift a prayer for our president, for our senators, for our representatives, for our governor, for the justices of the Supreme Court, for those who are in our legislature in Olympia, even for our city's mayor and for our our city's town council. Lord, I pray not only that they would do their jobs well and with honor and with dignity, but I pray, Lord, that you would transform them, that you would um, give them new life in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that they would begin then to lead by a new power, a power that is only given by your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that as we go about our lives this week, that we would individually take time to pray for our government, for those who lead us in high positions. Father, I pray that we would also take moments that you give us to speak to those around us about their soul salvation and give us power to do that. In your name, I pray. Amen.